We're going to use this morning Psalm 53 to consider together at the start of a new year a world in need of Christ. It's said that there are two things in life that are always certain, which are death and taxes, they say. But with an open Bible, we can know that other things are also certain. Now, we're not in a position to predict specific events or circumstances, of course. Even our own plans for the future are all submitted to the will of God, which is known only unto him. But we can predict that throughout the coming year, our news headlines will be filled with all kinds of happenings which confirm for us that we live in a world of sin and wickedness. We're going to have plenty of reminders of that during this next year. And we can, actu- we can actually fairly accurately predict the nature of those things that will come onto our TV screens and onto our newspaper headlines. Because the sinful heart produces common traits and characteristics of rebellion against God. All of us are born with this nature which is at heart a self-centred nature, a self-seeking nature and a self-gratifying nature. We're all born with hearts which are proud, arrogant, greedy, covetous, immoral, exploitative, happily take advantage of others and deceitful. We're born with a nature which lives for sensual pleasures in the here and now. We see this in individuals. We have to be honest and say that we know that's in ourselves, in our sinful, natural state. And we even see this in things that people do together, collectively, in one way or another. You don't need me to tell you that in the world of academia, for example, God is denied and rejected by the majority in the belief that we have the intellectual capacity to grapple with both the physical and the philosophical and to eventually make sense of this world for ourselves. We don't need God and there is no God to whom we are accountable. We see it likewise in the world of business and commerce where all too readily sharp practices are employed, corners are cut, customers taken for a ride. You ever tried making a claim on an insurance policy? The things, the lengths they'll go to not to have to pay out, just as one example. The billions of pounds currently being returned to bank customers for the mis-selling of payment protection insurance that I was embroiled with as a former bank employee many years ago. Our bosses looked at us askant when we said to them on one occasion, this is all going to come back and bite you. (laughs) Greed. Greed for money. Greed for power. Pride and covetousness, 
that craves to be seen as influential and successful. These are the things that drive many corporations and the individuals within them. And men and women will all too easily suppress their conscience and pursue their goals with arrogance, with disregard for the negative impact that it might have on other people. We certainly don't need God. And we don't want him interfering with our profits. We don't want him taking away our fat cat salaries and bonuses. And there certainly is no God to whom we are accountable for our conduct. And why is the lottery so successful? Because people want a shortcut to all that wealth without having to work for it. A few months back, some people thought it was a scandal when it was revealed that the head of one of the country's biggest online betting companies pays herself over £100 million a year. Yet all those people who are protesting about it are gambling every week on the lottery, hoping for the same kind of payout. That's the perversity of the human heart. That's the perversity of the human nature. And we all have these common traits in our sinful nature. Now, in Romans chapter 12, do you remember where the Apostle Paul says this to Christians? I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't be conformed to this world, because it's in us all to do that. It's in us all to be that. We're all capable of travelling down that road that so many are travelling along. Don't continue to go along with this way that the world thinks and behaves because that is the natural tendency in all of us. Break out of that mould, Paul says to Christian believers. Now to do that requires a completely different way of thinking. It requires a renewed mind. A mind that is able and has the desire to do that which is pleasing to God. And for that, we need God himself to completely change us because we can't generate that kind of change within ourselves. Peter, in one of his letters, speaks about how when that truly happens in the life of a Christian, it places us completely at odds with the world in which we live. They will think it's strange that you do not run with them in that same flood of dissipation. He writes in 1 Peter 4.4. 4. Psalm 53 then is completely relevant to our current day. Because it has always 
and will always be the truth about this world until Christ returns. The things that we read in Psalm 53. And this psalm also reminds us of the things that we as Christian believers have been delivered from. Now Charles Spurgeon found eight headings to describe what is spoken about here in Psalm 53. And so I'm not borrowing his sermon, but I'm going to borrow his headings as we consider what is revealed in this psalm. Because it reveals to us a world in need of Christ. So let's think about some of the, the, the truths that come from these words. Here's the first thing. The fact of sin. The fact of sin. Now many people today scoff and laugh at the notion of sin. But you still really believe in that stuff? It's just an outdated method by which the church tries to subdue people and keep the church under the thumb, they say. To keep people in their place. You really believe in this thing called sin? But as Christians, our response is that the existence of sin is God's definite judgment of the state of the world. From the place of his holiness, he looks down from heaven, verse 2, on the children of men. Now that phrase, the children of men, is found 14 times in the Bible, all in the Old Testament and mostly in the Psalms. And it's a phrase which is used to speak of the whole world, but to speak of the whole world in their sinful state. We're all the offspring of sinful parents. We're all the children of men. None of us are born as children of God, but children of men. And so God looks down from heaven in his holiness and all sinfulness lies exposed to him and there really is nothing more to be said on the matter this is the truth of God's word and this is God's declaration of the world that he has made and the depths to which it has sunk the fact of sin now, of course, in gospel preaching, uh, one of the main obstacles is right there. People are just not prepared to accept even this concept or notion of sin at all. Well, so be it. But we simply have to stand and declare what God has declared about the world. That this is a world of sin and sinfulness. And the examples of it are all around us. And will continue to be throughout this coming year. The fact of sin. We have to confront people with this. This is you. This is your heart. This is your nature. This is how you stand before a holy God as he looks down upon you. This is who he sees. 
And secondly, we see the fault of sin in the world. Notice the words that are used by God, because it's the word of God, written by David, yes, but it's the word of God. Note the words that God uses through the hand of David to describe sin. There's nothing flattering or praiseworthy to be found here in this psalm. Corrupt, which means decayed to the point of ruin. It was a piece of food you would immediately smell the smell and, dis- and discard it to the rubbish bin. That's what the word corrupt means. Abominable iniquity. And that means loathsome, moral perversity. The, the greatest level of offence to God. All have turned aside and none have done good. He said, hang on a minute, none? None. Not the kind of goodness that God considers to be good. And herein lies the cause of all of our hurts and all of our afflictions and all of our disappointments in this world. It's all the fault of sin. And we see all around us, everywhere, evidence of just how good this creation was. Even in its fallen state, we can see that actually it was good. Even in its fallen state, our breath can be taken away by some of the wonders of the world that we see all around us. And that's in its fallen state. What on earth was it like when it was perfect? And yet we're surrounded by such awful and relentless misery that we seem incapable of solving because we are incapable of solving it because it's all the result of sin. And if anything is going to improve, then the issue of sin has to be dealt with. And until and unless the issue of sin is dealt with, nothing's going to change. And thirdly in this psalm, we see the fountain of sin. It's just pouring and pouring and pouring. Now, it's on account of God's common grace towards us that many of us are prevented from being as wicked and evil as we might otherwise be. But how is it that so many still descend into such depths of depravity and barbaric treatment of their fellow man? This man who was just stabbed on a train in broad daylight in London the other day. What makes people do that? Where does that come from? It's flooding up from within them. Sin. It's because the world says there is no God. There is no God. There is no eternal and supreme standard to determine that which is right and wrong. There is no eternal and supreme standard to decide that which is morally acceptable or objectionable. There is no such God. It's all a matter of personal perspective. It's all a matter of what seems right in my eyes. There is no God who's going to call us to account 
or who will one day judge me. I'm free to do whatever I like with no consequence. This is the fountain of sin in people's lives. And so convinced of this, sin abounds more and more to every generation. It's the world we live in. And fourthly in this psalm, we see the folly of sin. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Those who deny God are pictured in the Bible like ignorant beasts. It's not very flattering. It's not meant to be. There are several things that mark out humankind from the animal kingdom because we were in the very first place made in God's image. There are a number of things that mark us out from the rest of the animal world. Our creativity and our imagination. Our capacity for logic and the power of reason and debate. Our moral sense of conscience and of right and wrong. Our powers to take elements from the earth and to construct and to manufacture. Our ability to love. The diversity of our emotional life. But of all, above all of these is our capacity for religion and our capacity to know and love God and to live in fellowship with him. Which ultimately was why God created us the way he did. That in that created world there will be men and women who God could walk with in the garden and share fellowship with them. And the world arrogantly displays what it believes to be its intellectual progress with the denial of God being its proudest boast. But rather than knowing more and more, as they suppose, the further away from God they run, their knowledge is actually diminishing with every step they take. And they actually know less and less the further away from God they go. The folly of sin. It's abject foolishness. And we see in this psalm, fifthly, the filthiness of sin. Sinners are described in the opening verse as being corrupt. Their nature is marred and spoiled. We have a saying, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Or the higher they are, the further they fall. Well, man, mankind, men and women, were the most noble pinnacle in God's creation. And it is they who have sinned and how far they have fallen in their sinfulness. And because of how great our fall has been, how much more vile before God we are in our fallen state because of our sin. 
Our iniquity is said to be abominable in God's eyes, utterly heinous and grievous to him. His eyes so pure, he cannot look upon sin. Whereas at one time, he would walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. The filthiness of our sin, our willful wickedness is the greatest defilement in this world. Willful wickedness. The filthiness of our sin. <clears throat> and we see the fruit of sin. Number six, the fruit of sin. We see several things in this psalm which stand in complete contrast to our restored and reconciled position as Christian believers. We see that, we see that unbelievers in their sinful state are not able to do anything which merits as goodness before a God of pure and holy love. They can't do anything which merits as goodness. Now, they do plenty that they think is good in their own estimation, but it counts as nothing before God. That's the fruit of sin, which actually is fruitless. They have no understanding of God and his ways, none. And so they're bereft and they're without any hope when all the trials of life come upon them. That's why this testimony of Christian believers when they're going through the mill is such an important part of our Christian life. Such an important part of our witness. We're not like you without hope. And we read in this psalm that they work iniquity. Verse 4. They are workers of iniquity. People don't stumble into it by accident. They do it on purpose. They plan it. They choose it. They design it. They throw themselves into it. They are workers of iniquity. They are not innocent victims in their sinfulness. None of us are. They give themselves willfully to it. And they set themselves against the Lord's people, as Peter said. They'll see the difference in the life of a Christian. You're not like us, and you should be. They don't like it when we're not. Because we're at odds against them. Because of the fruit of sin in the world, and the fruit in the life of the Christian is completely different. And then seventhly, there's the fear and the shame of sin. What's the meaning of the opening of verse 5? There they are in great fear where no fear was. What's that mean? Even when there is no apparent need for fear, when there's nothing in their lives that is immediately or obviously a threat to their safety or their well-being, Men and women are still overwhelmed by fear. Even when things apparently are going well, they can be overwhelmed by fear. Let me tell you a personal story. About 35 years ago, I had a cousin, Ken. He was married, apparently happily. He had three children. He owned and ran his own very successful company. 
he was apparently well on his way to becoming a millionaire, which was something 35 years ago. From the outside looking in, he had nothing to fear. He had everything. But the reality was that on the inside, unknown it seems to everyone, including his wife, his mum and dad, his brother who worked for him, on the inside, Ken was in turmoil. A man consumed by fear. What those fears were, no one is sure of to this day. But one day, completely out of the blue as far as everyone else was concerned, Ken went off on his own and took his own life. Fears when there were no fears. A man who had everything that the world aims for. But there was something inside eating, eating, eating away at him. We don't know what it was. Well, we do know what it was. It was the result of living a life that says there is no God. It was the result of living a life that says there is no one else I'm accountable of except myself. It was the result of living a life where all your hopes are being placed in what you're producing with your own hands. And what does it produce? It produces fear where there is no fear. The fear and the shame of sin. And it produces itself in so many different ways. And if that's the experience of a man who the world would have classified as being a good man who had everything, how much worse must it be for those who are mired in utter depravity? The conscience haunts people so they can't sleep at night. Guilt crushes people. The pressures they put themselves under to maintain their image, keep their self-esteem, hold on to their wealth, be successful. It consumes them. And they're filled with fear where there is no fear. And look at the second half of verse 5. God scatters their bones. God puts them to shame. Why? Because God despises them in their sinfulness. Christian friends, let's just clear something up. The idea that God hates sin but loves the sinner is a false assurance to hold out to sinners. And it's not what the Bible teaches. Now, I understand why Christians say it. They say God hates sin but loves the sinner in an attempt to hold out to people a God who is loving. But it's the wrong message. And it's not the message of the Bible. And it's not the message of the gospel. God doesn't just hate sin. He hates the workers of iniquity. Psalm 5, listen carefully. 
You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. He doesn't just hate iniquity, he hates those who work iniquity. You shall destroy those, that's people. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. That's powerful language. The gospel is not that God hates sin but loves sinners. Now that might come as a shock to some of you. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that God has put his own son in the place of the sinners he despises. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus died for. In the place of those whom God despises. That's why Christ died. Because that's what sinners deserve. That's the gospel. The gospel isn't all warm and cuddly and cozy like cotton wool. It took Christ on the cross to solve the problem of sin. The gospel is that God set his love upon his elect and chosen ones and sent his son to die for them. That's the love that God has set on you, Christian friend. And now he calls all men everywhere to repent and to believe on Christ and be saved. That's the gospel. And all men and women, while they remain in their sin, they have the condemnation of God upon their heads. And he despises not only their sinfulness, he despises them while they remain in their sin. But there is hope. And there is a message of love. And there is a message of grace. And there is a message of compassion. Because there is a divine cure for this evil. Because the final verse speaks of the faith of the saints. Oh, that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion. A saviour has been promised. Who will come out of Zion. We've been remembering that these last few weeks over Christmas, haven't we? A saviour's come. The promised one. The Lord Jesus Christ has come into the world to be our saviour and, and redeemer, to atone for our sins, to take our place as the despised ones, that he will be despised and rejected by men, Isaiah 53. He's taken everything that God hates and nailed it to the cross through his death at Calvary. And he's conquered the grave through his resurrection. That through repentance and faith, all who believe on him might be saved. Those held captive in their sin, because we can't escape it ourselves. Those who are held captive might be released and forgiven all their sins. Now we remembered the other week how Simeon, that old man, we assume he was old, was waiting in the temple. 
He'd been promised that he would not see death until his eyes had seen Christ. The sinful hearts and minds are enlivened and illuminated. Where there's only been foolishness, there is wisdom in the knowledge of Christ. And where there's been corruption, there is wholeness and righteousness. And where there has been only iniquity, there will be obedience and holiness in these lives transformed by God's grace. Where there are none who are able to do good, there are now the Lord's people doing those good things which God prepared beforehand for you to do them and walk in them. Now there will be men and women and boys and girls who do seek God and who are granted understanding because you've been brought to Christ and you've been transformed and you're not the people you used to be and there's no condemnation now hanging over your head because it's all being taken by Christ. There's a great healing and cleansing and restoring from all of this filth and corruption on the inside. And such are you, Christian friends, if you're a Christian this morning. And what rejoicing there should be in your heart because of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. And as we embark upon a new year, let's not forget, firstly, what we've become in Christ and who we now are in Christ. And the cry of verse 6 should be our cry too, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Now in the Old Testament, Zion represents the church of Christ. So we can apply this verse for ourselves as a local church at the start of a new year. Let us make it our greatest priority that this year, the salvation that this world needs will be held forth by us as his people and his church. That out of this Zion, out of this church, Christ will come forth. That Christ will come out of Zion as we declare him and as we make him known. And that heaven will resound with the joy of sinners being brought to salvation and repentance. Let's pray that we have the resolve and the conviction and the boldness that we need in the face of such opposition as we have in the world today that we would make Christ known and that we would stand out from the crowd and how we rejoice to hear of testimonies where people are doing just that and people are standing back saying there's something different about these people. They've got something I don't have. What is the difference? The difference is Christ. May we have a desire to see God glorified and exalted through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be those people this year that out of us, through our words, through our lives, salvation might come to others. How this world needs Christ. You have him. Go and tell. Tell. 